Now, uh, let's see, I think everybody here except Kim was here this morning, but for Kim's benefit, I'll mention that I, uh, a week or so ago, did my own little unscientific survey where I sent texts and emails to about 20 different people, um, and it was a wide cross-section, Sunday school teachers, pastors, uh, one theologian, one seminary professor, and... Uh, Everybody was reformed, but for different, you know, walks of life. And my question was, if you had to choose one of the four Gospels as the most important, what would it be? And I got a few responses. This, I'm not going to answer that question. It's not a fair question. I can't possibly answer it. Ah, I get that. But, you know, I, I, it, as it was, I thought it was worth asking. Um, I got a few people that said Luke. I got a few that said um, uh, Mark, but the overwhelming majority, few said, I actually didn't get anybody said Mark. I got Matthew and Luke, but the overwhelming majority said John. And uh, they didn't, uh, there was no question about why they chose that. That wasn't part of it, but, you know, a lot of people will choose John's gospel just because of John 3.16, and that's important enough. But um, <clears throat> I certainly concur with that choice, and I hope as we go through the study, we come to understand how crucial and important well, all four of the Gospels are important, but I think John has a special place, uh, and, and it's, it's obviously different than the other three, synoptic Gospels we call the other three, So, um, and we'll find out a little bit more about that. But before we uh, read verses 1 through 18 of John chapter 1, let me just say that the first goal that we ought to have in studying this Gospel, any part of Scripture, is that of understanding this part of God's Word in the broader picture of what the entire Bible is all about. None of these books stand by themselves. They're all part of the broader picture of the great sweep of redemption and the coming of God's kingdom. And then the second thing that we ought to be thinking about in beginning a study like this is to ask ourselves at just about every step of the way, what in the world does this have to do with me? You know, if you, if you come away from a study of the word and you just pretty much know about the language, the Greek means that, and this was going on there, and the Romans were doing that, and you go out, well, you've been like in a Bible college class. You haven't really been in an encounter with what Scripture has to say unless that question is asked and resolved, what does this have to do with me? So with those goals in mind, I'd like for us to focus our attention on this part of God's Word, uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, and I'm going to ask Let's see, Mike, would you read verses 1 through 8? And then, uh, Jill, I'll ask you to read verses 9 through 18. In the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might be believed through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, 
to those who devote to his even his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is bird before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Thank you. So um, I'm going to stop it right there. We may look at a few other verses. But in this first part of the chapter, there are a number of things that I think we need to understand. I don't know know that we'll cover them all this evening. Um, But let me say that the first thing that we want to know, or excuse me, that John, the author of this gospel, wants us to know about Christ is his deity, the fact that he is God. The very first thing he says that harks back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God. And here this gospel opens, uh, and, and it's, it's steeped in this Old Covenant, Old Testament imagery. And those who would have read this initially would have been familiar with that to a large extent. So the Old Covenant is the foundation of the New. So if we are going to really understand the gospel according to John, we'd better read it with these kind of Old Testament themes in the back of our heads. He says that the Word was in the beginning. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we know from the rest of those verses that this, quote, Word John is talking about here is Jesus the Christ. But you notice that John makes a point to tell us that the Christ is both God and with God. And what John is trying to get across to his readers, I think, is this. This word, this Messiah, was from the very beginning in a deeply personal relationship with the Father. Uh, God is a trinity. He's one and yet three. And as God the Father is um, a person, so too is the Son, the eternal word, a person. And John tells us here that from the very beginning, they have been in this relationship of fellowship with each other. Now, um, he uses a word here, a word that's translated word. I'm sure most of you know what the, the Greek term is behind it. Who can tell me? Logos. 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 Now, it's worth understanding that, um, <clears throat> uh, of course, these gospel texts are written in Greek. Uh, according to most scholars, the Gospel of John was the la- latest of the Gospel, the, the the, the one that was written the last, or at least approved the last, in terms of its canonicity, um, I think most all, all four of them were written before A.D. 70, but John was written uh, in the latter part of that time frame. So they're using words in a language that had been spoken for a thousand years or more before these gospel texts were written down. And there are a few words in the New Testament that are translated from the Greek that they were known in the Greek language, but they weren't used very often. I think, I, I wish Joshua was here to correct me, maybe one of you all can, I'm not sure, but the term agape, or agape, which was you know, one of the terms for love, uh, that was known in the Greek language, but not used very often in, uh, in the Greek uh, writing and, and day-to-day conversation. Uh, its incorporation in the New Testament and use among the Christians was very, very unique. 
It wasn't a common phrase. I think I'm right about that. Now, this term logos, however, which is translated here as word, is very different. It has a long, long history in the Greek language, and it has a deep history in Greek philosophy. And it's just no happenstance coincidence that the author of this gospel, John, has used this term. And so it's important that we understand, yeah, it can mean word, language, logic, reason. It means all those things. But within its larger context, I guess one thing that we need to understand about it is it means ultimate reality. I mean, this, uh, th this word encompasses everything of, of, that has ever been created and ever will be uh, brought into existence by God Almighty. It has that deep background um, among Greek thinkers. And I, I think it's important for us to realize that it simply means something other than word, like something printed on the page. And we'll see why that's important here coming up in just a few moments. <clears throat> so the second thing that I'm suggesting that he wants us to know about Christ is that what he was doing before he became human, before he was incarnate. Before the Son of God became incarnate or put on human flesh to become one with us, before that, well, what was he doing? Well, John tells us, if you look again at verses 3 through 5, all things were made through him, and without him was nothing, excuse me, not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And right away, our minds are drawn back to where? Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. Uh, Jesus Christ is God, and before he became man, he was the maker of all things, according to John. And when we consider the original creation, we think about Adam and Eve. And John is telling us here that whatever spiritual light that they possessed before falling into sin, it was from Logos. It was from Christ. And in verse 5, we are brought back again to, as I just said, the, the, the book of Genesis. So what happened in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth? Why, darkness was upon the face of the, earth, the deep, but then God, through his word, called forth light and the darkness fled away. And I think John's point is that just as God drove away the physical darkness at creation, so too does the Christ drive away and overcome the spiritual darkness of the world. Uh, darkness and light are opposites, of course. And John is telling us here, um, they are not opposites of equal power, however. The darkness is powerless to overcome the light. I've used this illustration many times over the years. You probably have heard it before. If you are in a pitch... How many of you have ever really been in a completely dark room? I mean pitch dark. You can cut it with a knife. It's so thick. Okay. Yeah, what was it? House Cavern? You ever been to House Cavern, uh, uh, Kim? It's a, what's, it, what's it near? It's in upstate New York. Yeah, near Cooperstown. Yeah, near Cooperstown. Uh, is it near Utica? Or, uh, anyway, you, go, you see these signs on the thruway. Um, for it, and you go. We finally went to this place, and you go. I don't know, way, way down, you know, in the uh, in the earth, and there's like a little underground creek, and they put you on this little boat, and it's a big, big attraction, you know, for that part of New York. And uh, especially going to summertime, it's really cool down there. That's another good reason to go. But they get so far up this underground river, or whatever it is, and uh, of course there are lights, and you know, they put lights all down there and everything. But then they turn out all the lights, so you can experience total darkness. And I mean. Like we say around here, it's flat dark. <laughs> you, know, you can't see anything. But here's the thing to consider. If someone just strikes a match 
the darkness can't overcome that. You know, the, the darkness is just totally impacted by even that small of a light. And I think that's what John wants us to understand in comparing the light to the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. And, um, and then the third thing uh, John wants us to know about Jesus here is that there was someone who went, uh, paved a way before him, someone who paved that way, so to speak, for his coming into the world. Uh, and that someone was who? John the Baptizer. Um, if you look again at verses 6 through 8, uh, he refers to that there. Uh, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not that light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So that's something else that we need to understand is that there was a forerunner, somebody announcing the way, not simply, well, it certainly means the coming of Christ, but the coming of the kingdom. And the, the coming seismic shift in God's interaction with his people and with humanity. Um, as much a prophet as Moses or Isaiah or Jeremiah, John too was a man sent by God. And like John the baptizer, those men, those prophets were sent to bear witness of the truth of God in their time. And all the prophets from Abraham down to John the Baptist were called of God to bear witness to his truth and his word in their time and their generations. And he tells us that the baptizer bore witness to the truth that God the Son was none other than Jesus of Nazareth. That was John's message. And that all who trusted in and believed on his name would become saved, be they Jew or Gentile. And then later in the gospel, uh, why don't we turn to this. Turn to John chapter 20. Keep your place there in chapter 1. Turn to John chapter 20. And locate verse 31. Um, he tells us something about his own, the Apostle John, the author of the Gospel's own witness. We've got a lot of Johns floating around here, so it can be a little confusing. Um, but he says here in John 20, verse 31, I'm reading from the New King James Version here. But these are written, these things that he's written in the previous 19 chapters, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now that's a, a broad you, a Y-O-U, whoever reads and hears this. That's why these things were written. And then the, um, the fourth thing that I want to mention, and this will be the last one I'm going to cover this evening. Um, he, he, he wants you to know about Jesus' rejection that he has faced from among his own people. So look again at verses 10 and 11, John 1, 10 and 11. <clears throat> Notice it says, He, that is the Christ, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So right there, we've, we've got a term world here that is the Greek term cosmos, which means the world at large, the world of human beings, the world of people. So I think that's a broad reference to the Gentile, the pagan world. But then there's verse 11. This becomes an extremely important verse. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now who is he referring to there? He's referring to the Jews. Uh, and, you know, uh, Jesus was born the king of Israel, the Messiah of Israel. And that passage, 
these two verses, they have some real challenges for us because we've got two ideas that are significant for our proper understanding. I've tried to highlight it in the reading of it. And I mentioned that this term translated world here, and we know that that term is used in, in English. It's, it, it can mean different things depending on the Greek term that's behind it. Uh, another term for the word world is oikumene, which generally refers to the Roman Empire or the known world of that time, which is largely the Roman Empire. Uh, cosmos means the world generally, the, but it doesn't mean, you know, we would think of the universe and stars and all that. Um, it, it means the known world in terms of the physical world and the world of human beings. And that's the term used here in this very specific sense. Um, let me tell you, first of all, what he does not mean by that word world. He does not mean world in the sense of the universe with trees and birds and animals. It can be used that way, but I don't think that's what he means by it here. He means, rather, the world of human beings, and specifically the world of fallen, rebellious human beings, the pagans, the Gentiles, the Greeks, the Romans. And this impacts, then, the second idea that we need to appreciate. The world here has an even more specific target in this context, and that is the world of the Israelites, or more specifically, as they were known and called themselves at that time, the Jews. And this becomes the, in my opinion at least, the most important and enduring issue. Let me back up. This becomes one of the most important and enduring issues that runs right through the entire Gospel of John. And even more importantly, through the entire history of the world from the time of Jesus to this time. So you notice that John is making a distinction between the Israelite and the non-Israelite reaction to the Messiah's coming into the world. The Gentiles, he said, did not know him, but his own people of Israel did not receive him. And those are two entirely different things. Unlike the Gentiles, they knew him all right. They just didn't want anything to do with him, some of them. And this is where it starts to get complicated, and this is where things we have to deal with begin to change. Because we find that the coming of Jesus was, broadly speaking, a turning point for all of history in the world. We, we can see that easily enough. But on a more specific and foundational level, his coming becomes a decisive turning point for the people who call themselves the Jews. As a matter of fact, his arrival on the scene created a massive crisis about the very idea of what it means to be a Jew. And John's gospel is in part a history of how that crisis arose and how it unfolded, and how it was ultimately resolved. And to that, we're going to turn our attention more next time. Uh, let me just say one concluding thing about this latter part of it. You have to put yourself in the frame of mind that if you were a Jew living in those days, especially if you were a rabbi, a teacher, a Sadducee, a Pharisee, whatever, you know, your, your whole theology, your whole worldview is built around the fact that your people have been in exile, they've come back to the promised land, but they're still in exile because the Romans are running everything. And they've got a theology of having been delivered, but they're still under bondage. And there's this fervent desire and belief that Jehovah is going to do something to deliver them. John the Baptizer certainly we talked about that, but he wasn't the only one. I mean, there were other prophets claiming various and sundry things, so there was... The place was feverish with this kind of expectation at that time. And so if you are part of the official elite 
If you're, you know, the president of the Bible College of Jerusalem, if you're the head of the seminary in Galilee, you know, you've got a vested interest in how all this thing plays out. Because your teaching and your theology and your belief system is founded on things going a certain way. But what does the text say? He came to his own, and his own didn't receive him. All right, we have to qualify that a little bit because obviously some of them did. And all of these apostles, including the author of this gospel, were Jews. And so this is where the crisis comes in. Because up to that point, it was fairly easy to describe and decide who was a Jew and who wasn't. You know, many of the kosher laws that we may be familiar with today, you know, came from that time but also previous times when they were, you know, slaves in Babylon and they they needed to come up with some way to distinguish themselves from these pagans and the things that they did. So we don't eat that stuff. We don't worship these gods. We don't do these kind of things. So that's certainly one way a Jew could be defined. But here comes this guy, Jesus. And here comes God Almighty sending him into the world as his incarnate son. Many Jews believed what God was doing in Christ, but a whole lot of others didn't. And so what we're going to see as we go through this study, apart from all the other things that you know we're used to learning and studying about in the Gospel of John, is that there is this progressive developing understanding and redefining of who and what is a Jew. And that becomes a tremendously important thing for the history, not only of the Christian movement in that time, but really for the rest of the world. So we will uh, continue that next time we get together.